Support for Talking Art on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Mia Foyer, the Canadian artist whose solo exhibition, Totems of the Anthropocene, opens soon at the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport. Welcome, Mia. Hi. We are so excited to talk with you today because your work really requires the viewer to confront the possible future of our world, one that's degraded by our exploitation for petroleum and exposure to petroleum products. What was the catalyst for you to create this? Well, it goes back a few years to um, the spring of 2011. I found myself in Egypt um, a couple months after Hosni Mubarak was ousted. And I was, uh, I was standing sort of in front of the Suez Canal and watching tankers move through. And I started to really reflect on my own practice, my own relationship to petrochemicals as art materials. I decided that I needed to really take a deeper dive into understanding really where these materials came from. Um, I really needed to analyze and, 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 and examine my relationship to petrochemicals in my studio. Obviously, petrochemicals make up every other corner of my life, but my art practice, I really wanted to take a closer look. I'm also from Canada, and there was a lot of talk around 2011, 2012, 2013 about the Keystone XL pipeline and whether or not the Obama administration was going to green light um, the, the construction of it to move uh, highly toxic crude from Northern Alberta right through the U.S. to be um, refined and shipped out uh, in the Gulf. So um, through some very sort of serendipitous and um, really kind of backdoor weird ways, I was able to gain uh, access, um, sort of unprecedented access to the Alberta tar sands uh, mining specifically the Suncor Energy, which is the second largest energy company in Canada. I was curious. Uh, I, I wanted to understand uh, my relationship with petrochemicals uh, on a much deeper, in a much deeper way. I ended up um, emailing all the PR offices for all the different um, oil companies in Northern Alberta. And there are many, many, many up there digging up this very heavy, very destructive uh, material. And, and by destructive, I mean the process required to extract it from the earth is, is so unbelievably harmful to communities uh, of all species, to the land, to the water, to the air. Um, and, and sort of everything in its wake as it gets shipped, moved, burned, refined, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, after, after receiving a series of rejections from all of the oil companies that I had initially reached out to, uh, hi, my name is Mia Foyer. I'm Canadian. I live in Washington, D.C., which is where I was living at the time. I'm an artist. I'm a professor at George Mason University, where I was currently teaching. And I am fascinated. I'm so curious about the transformation of the Canadian landscape. And I would love a tour of your 
uh, you know, of your, of your strip mines. And of course they were like, no, 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 no. You cannot come here. But then I kept trolling around online until I found a flyer for a Suncor Energy company barbecue, uh, Suncor Energy being the second largest oil company in Canada. And the contact on there was someone named Barbara. And so I just emailed Barbara. I was like, Hey, Barbara, uh, my name's Mia Foyer. I'm a professor. I'm an artist, Canadian, DC, blah, blah, blah. Um, any chance, you know, I could get a tour of, of the grounds. I'm just, I really am curious. I really want to check out, you know, the mines and the reclamation sites and the tailings ponds. And so she ended up sending my email to her sister, uh, Carol, who was um, in this like Sunday morning sketching class at the local community center with one of Suncor Energy site managers and they just like got my, so, so I sort of was able to get around the PR office, you know, and this manager was like, Oh, an artist wants to come visit. How, how lovely. And then I got, and then they were like, sure, come on down. And I, or come on up, I should say, cause it's way up in, in Northern Alberta. So I flew up there. I spent some time there in the winter of 2012. I went again in the winter of 2013 and uh, this, and I'm so sorry that went on for so long, but I just feel like it's really important to mention because my time up there in those mines um, was profound and it was dark and it was grim and it really, um, it, 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 sh- it shaped my work and my practice that is um, a forever, it left a forever impression on, on sort of the direction of my work. The work is all, uh, not long after my second bit of research in the Canadian tar sands, I was invited on an arts and science expedition to the Arctic Circle where I sailed on a uh, Barkentine tall ship around the North Pole for about a month. And that was like, holy, crap, profound experience number two. And, um, and then not soon after that, I spent some time doing work uh, down in Louisiana in the bayous um, with indigenous tribes, uh, specifically the indigenous tribe uh, Pointe Chen and Ile de Jean Charles, who live uh, right on the very um, sort of tip of the you know the bottom of Louisiana on the Gulf and their land is being lost due to sea level rise and abusive petroleum uh industrial practices and extreme weather um kind of at this unprecedented rate so it was a culmination of all of that research that really kind of um this this exhibition came came out of I love the fact that these these deeply personal connections that you made. You're physically staring at these wastelands, if you will, um, really provoked you to create your art. Describe for the listener what they will find in your exhibit. Uh, As you walk in, well, there's, there's a piece that is called Totems of the Anthropocene. It's one of the smaller pieces in the exhibit. Um, And that is, it's a little bit more of a whimsical piece uh, that is uh, a stack of found sleds and a pile of found petroleana, which is um, vessels formerly containing petroleum products. But inside each one, I hand cast and hand assembled um, geodes, uh, these sparkling crystalline forms made of cast petrochemicals. Uh, there's also um, a massive sculpture towards the back of the exhibition, uh, which is called Rink. And it is a 
hockey rink made of synthetic black ice. So there's no actual ice. It's all um, high density polypropylene and other petrochemicals uh, that make up this hockey rink. And it is, there will be hockey skates available in every size for viewers to the exhibition to skate on it. The piece for me is, uh, again, it's a, it's a, explores a personal account a memory I had of growing up in Winnipeg where everybody had hockey rinks, you know, and on every block on every, you know, on every corner. And my dad was a goalie for years and years and years. And I remember when I was little, I would sit up on the, on, on the bleachers and I would watch him come out onto the ice before anybody else, his teammates, the opposing team would come out. My dad was always the first one out and um he would just sort of skate around alone and he would he would stare at his skates he would stare at the ice and he wouldn't look up at me and he just had this look on his face of such intense focus and contemplation and it i just really wanted to recreate that same space um that i felt like my dad I, my dad created on the rink for the viewer to the exhibition, except, you know, with a few changes. Obviously, it's not ice. Obviously, we're skating on oil. And it's black in color. I'm just trying to give the listener a visual. It's black. And the figgy promotional material describes this swirling vortex of ravens and uprooted trees. Um, Directly above the skating rink is this sort of cacophonous, uh, deconstructed landscape that sort of hovers above and it is um, yeah, it's, it's this suspended installation made up of fabricated birch trees and fabricated um, sort of industrial mining architecture and, and Raven wings. And, and that is um, what, when I was in the tar sands getting those tours, doing that research, I was taken to a reclamation site. And this is a site where, after the oil company, you know, wreaks havoc on the land, they they clear cut the boreal forest, they destroy the ecosystem, they dig out all of the petroleum material, and then they're left with this gaping, gaping wound in the in the earth. And so they begin the reclamation process of, you know, filling it back up and replanting the seeds. But unfortunately, the little baby seedlings couldn't grow because the earth beneath it was so toxic. And so what was explained to me was that um, they planted a bunch of wheat. Wheat is, um, they were trying to practice bioremediation, meaning that after a few decades of wheat growing on this toxic land, um, the wheat would actually leach out the toxins. But what happened was mice came in and mice started eating up this wheat. And in order to um, mitigate or control the mice population, they brought in these dead birch trees, they flipped them upside down and they installed them in the landscape with the roots of the trees stretching into the air, into the sky. And these massive ravens would come and they would perch on these upside down um, birch trees, these upside down dead birch trees and hunt the mice that were eating the toxic wheat that was growing in the toxic earth. And, you know, I'll just never forget the moment that the site manager looked at me and he said, you see reclamation. And I, it was really in that moment, that was probably my darkest moment um, of just coming to terms with how much we have destroyed this planet, how much we continue to do so. Um, 
and and how grim our future is is looking for all, all you know the, the the babies of all species to come. So that's yeah. the understanding I'm guessing that you want the viewer to have as they skate around. And this is a single person skating rink. Yeah, it was important to me for it to be a solo skate, really like you and you and your own sort of um, inner. Right. Like, like your father looking yeah. down at the ice and contemplating his, uh, his position, you know, and it really mm-hmm. symbolizes the environmental realities that you're facing in Alberta and also the loss of pond skating, because with global warming, we don't have yeah. as many places to, uh, to, to skate on. Well, what materials do you work with? You you'd mentioned found objects like the sleds and this petroliana, mm-hmm. which I love that term. It's kind of a gas mm-hmm. station collectible or, or gas um, canisters that used to store petroleum. Yeah. How, how do you f- acquire them? Where do you find them? I'm always looking. I look, I, you know, I'm always on the hunt for sort of sacred trash. Um, I think that garbage and waste and discarded things are really the materials of our time. They've, I feel like they really embody a story about the, the moment that we live in. Um, and, you know, I teach my classes in the same way. I, I'm always like, do not go to Home Depot and spend $600. Go to the dumpster, <laughs> go to the alley. But, you know, so I'm always on the hunt, you know, in, in old garage, you know, someone's cleaning out their garage. I'm poking around. I'm looking for stuff. But, um, I, you know, I also go to like flea markets and, and um, other other kinds of places where I know I can just find discarded junk, mm-hmm. uh, which, I, which, which I think is, you know, the most beautiful and the most sort of um, rich, sort of rich with, with narrative and with story. It is. Um, People are really embracing yeah. f- the use of found objects, and you seem to do it in such a spectacular fashion. Uh, you know, your installations seem as if they're really huge, um, and they mm. must be large, obviously, for you to install an indoor skating rink at the Figgy Art Museum. But how how did you have the space to create this initially, and how do you transport your work? Because there are really some logistical issues I'm guessing you you have to confront. Oh boy, this is this is an ongoing issue. I, I will say every piece I've made and every time I've had to move it, there is another story attached to it. Um, some of my earliest work, uh, I was making. I, I've always been attracted to like large scale. I, I think that might come from my theater background. Um, before I really committed to being a, a fine artist. Uh, I was working in in children's theater, and I was I loved building sets and building worlds. And I think that is I sort of got a taste for that type of scale, where it it becomes an installation that your body can really move through. And so, some of my earliest works, I mean, I would build them in a in a in a you know forty different parts, and they'd be strewn all over the city. Some in my studio, some in my bedroom, some in my kitchen, some in my car, some in you know the studio of the school that I was working at. And uh, <laughs> and I, I remember I was I spent my last eight hundred bucks on renting a Penske truck in Vermont, and I had to get all of my sculpture that I made at an artist residency in Vermont back down to an exhibition in Atlanta. And, you know, no one had any money. I didn't have any. I spent my, well, I spent my last $800 on this one last truck and I had to stop in DC 
uh, where I was living at the time. And I had um, actually drove the truck a little too close to the White House. Anyway, all of a sudden I get, you know, secret service, you know, in front of me, behind me, driver, step out of your vehicle, driver, turn off your engine kind of thing. And uh, I, and you know, there's, there's cops everywhere. And I, they're like, driver, get out of the truck. And so I get out of the truck and they grab me and they cuff me and they throw me on this, on the curb. And uh, it turned out that when Penske rented me the truck, um, they had rented me a truck that had tags that were reported stolen at one point. And so when I drove a little bit too close to the white house, the, the secret service ran the tags and it came up stolen. And so they were like, okay, this is trouble. And that's why they, you know, got a whole fleet of, you know, police cars and what have you to, to pull me over. Anyway, I got out of it. And then the next morning I went to Penske and I said, um, you rented me a truck with stolen tags and I got pulled over by the cops and they, they pointed guns at me and I'm, you know, completely traumatized. And they ended up giving me like free trucks for about three years. <laughs> Perfect. So you can haul your things all over. But you you had a, a little more hospitable, a little bit more welcoming reception in, in uh, Washington, D.C. at a later date because you did uh, have an um, an exhibition in 2013 at the Corcoran Gallery of yeah. Art in yeah. in that city. So that yeah. must have been a little bit uh, a little bit different encounter. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, the the Secret Service were involved at that point. <laughs> now, artists have a platform from which to make us think more critically and expansively. Do you, do you think making people feel uncomfortable is necessary for us to seriously question existing environmental practices? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, these are. This is this is. I mean, to say that we are living in uncomfortable times is a privilege. Um, I think that we're living in. I, I don't want to be too grim, but i I fear every I fear I fear every day for um, the, the future of my of my son and 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 my role in contributing to that future. I think that it's the job of an artist to create work that responds, that reacts, that reflects, that resists, you know, the times that we live in. And I, I think that um, art that I, I just don't, I just don't really think that art serves much of a perfect, a purpose if all it does is um, give you a cozy, warm feeling. Right. I think um, a lot of people associate art with, with beauty, but really the whole purpose of art is to make us think, to open up our mind. And sometimes that is acknowledging the difficult, the, the harsh, the dangerous. You know, you yeah. mentioned, you mentioned your son. Do you think being a parent, being a mother makes this issue even more important to you? Of course. Yeah. Everything changed when I had Galileo. I, I will say that when, um, a lot of the work that you're seeing here, I made before I had him. Um, and, a, and a few of the works, one of the works I made while I was pregnant and another work I made after. So for me, the show, it, 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 it I have this sort of private narrative that I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm sort of carrying um, because I did I did sort of make a contract with myself um, when I was standing in front of those upside down trees that I I wouldn't give birth I was not going to have a child I was not going to you know I was not going to bring another little human into the world and and I did four years later and uh, 
and it is terrifying but but rewarding at the same time but you're right it's it's course, uh, yeah. it, it, there are parts of it that are frightening and i think exhibitions like yours make us think more carefully more deeply about what we can do as individuals to try to to make a difference um, because we can all make a difference, whether or not it's something as simple as modifying our purchasing choices, choosing a product that's more sustainable, or whether or not it's actively campaigning for larger scale reforms. Yes. Uh, tell us a little about your early artistic training, your, your background. I, and I was actually wondering if you had some scientific training at all, given the nature of your exhibits. Um, I don't have any scientific training. Um I have, what did I do? I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Manitoba um, in Winnipeg. And then I went on to study, uh, I got my master's degree from um, the, um, from Virginia Commonwealth University, the Department of Sculpture and Extended Media, which is a fantastic sculpture program. I studied with some of the most brilliant minds, Elizabeth King, Michael Jones McKean, um, who just really cracked my mind and my heart wide open, I think. Um, not I think, I know. They, they, it, was a real, it was a real privilege to study with such brilliant people. And um, that is my, that's pretty much my training. Right out, of, right out of graduate school, I was offered a teaching position at American University. So I took that and I pieced together several sort of adjunct positions until I was offered a full-time position at George Mason, which I loved. What a wonderful school. Talk about amazing people. Um, and then from George Mason, I was there for about five years. I got offered a full-time position at California College of the Arts here in uh, Oakland in San Francisco. So I decided to, to, to make the move and to explore new, new ground, a new coast. Well, I'm sure they're thrilled to have you. And California is really a perfect place to be when we're talking about when you're trying to draw more attention to environmental issues. There's such a heightened awareness there. You know, I was thinking about this when I was looking at, um, at pictures of your work. For centuries, really, artists have used their creations to to convey moral lessons, you know, from ancient Greek plays through like the 18th and 19th century genre of history painting, moral messages have been transmitted through art. And your work's doing that, but in a modern way and through sculpture. So that's, that's Thank very you. cool. Yeah. yeah. I think that um, sculpture, you know, it's what I do. It's what I teach. It's how I it's how I think about the world. I think about it in sort of a, this weird through a sculptural lens. I I I I feel like sculpture is so poignant um, and so powerful because it is it is of materials um, and materials embody so much meaning. Um, they all tell stories. They all have been places. Materials come from somewhere. And, you know, they, they exist somewhere on these, you know, geologic timelines that we can't even exactly fathom. And they end up in the ocean or they end up in, 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 in microscopic bits of plastic in my breast milk and, you know, in, in landfills. And, 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 and I just, I think materials are, are just so, um, they're, they're, they're so important as we think about our relationship to the earth and each other. And 
that's where sculpture comes in for me. It is the language of of that sort of poetry. I'm looking forward to your artist talk this week on Thursday night at the Figgy. I look forward to giving. I love speaking about my work. Um, there's one piece in particular, actually, that I, I feel like I should mention. It is a piece called Mesh that I originally built in 2015. Uh, and it's a collaboration between myself and Dr. Grant Dean. He's a fellow at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, as well as um, a research fellow at UC San Diego. And he goes back and forth to the Arctic all the time. And his and what he does is he puts hydrophones beneath the Arctic Ocean and records the sounds of bubbles popping. And these air bubbles are um, the, the, the result of of ice melting and air being released as, as this ancient ice disappears. Um, and I actually originally heard an interview with him on NPR and I was fascinated by his work. And so there is a sculpture called mesh that you will see in the exhibition. And uh, it's, it's a sound, it's a sound. Well, it, it, it's got a sculptural and an audio component. And every time um so, so, so what it is, is you hear the sounds coming from beneath the Arctic Ocean for four months. For the entire course of the exhibition, you will hear sounds from beneath the Arctic Ocean. And every time there's a calving event, another glacier that is, you know, breaks off and calves and falls into the water, it, it'll sound like this thunderous kind of, uh, like, it's almost like a city falling into the water. Uh, it's this, this, terrifying sort of thunderous sound um and every time that happens there's a little mechanical element on the sculpture that is triggered by that frequency of sound that um in, sort of provokes a, a, a an actual physical change in the piece in the sculpture so, so do you do you hear the audio when you're elsewhere in the exhibition like if you're on the skating rink are you hearing it too or do you have to be standing right by the mesh sculpture I hope that that sound will be um, throughout the exhibition. I'm hoping that their speakers will be able to really carry it because it's just, it's so powerful to have that soundtrack in the, you know, while you're, while you're experiencing all the other pieces to hear what's going on beneath the Arctic ocean. And you said again, when those sounds are emitted, this mesh sculpture is actually moving in response to the sound. Well, what happens is um, a valve, a, a valves will open, and drops of dye will drip out from one element of the sculpture onto sort of this other element of the sculpture, which is made of salt. And the, you know, over the course of the exhibition, the the salt, the, the salt form will sort of become a record of glacial loss. Mm-hmm. So the salt, it doesn't disintegrate the salt. It just discolors it. It, kind of, it does both a little bit. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see this. Mia Foyer, I hope your upcoming exhibition will cause us to think and act in a more profound way about the environment and the world that we live in. Oh, thank you. Mia Foyer's solo exhibition, Totems of the Anthropocene, is opening this weekend, September 21st, at the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport. Come hear her discuss her own unique philosophical approach to her work at a free lecture on Thursday, September 19th. 
The Figgy offers free admission every Thursday evening, and the event begins at 5.30 p.m. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities, for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Kell. Thank you.